If you have a copy of God's word, I encourage you to turn to Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 41. If you don't have a Bible with you for any reason, uh, feel free to grab the black book and the chair rack in front of you and turn to page 909, 909, or you can just grab the bulletin and flip it open to the inside cover there. As you're turning, this is a long passage, and I have a lot of points, so I'm going to read the passage mostly as we go through each short point. I do this once in a blue moon for several reasons. Uh, one, it keeps us on our toes. Two, sometimes a passage is so packed that it's good to just unpack it all. Three, sometimes a passage deserves to be read, heard, digested together, so that's what we're going to do. Look at verses 1 through 41. Uh, not 42 to 47, because as you might remember, Jonathan Clark of RUF preached those a few weeks ago. And uh, lastly, I may or I may not preach a smaller section of this passage next time we look at Acts. I don't know yet, and that's about as much spontaneity as I can handle in preaching. So with that, we will... Look at Acts 2, 1 through 6 at the moment. We're going to read verses 7 through 41 as we walk through the passage later. But for now, Acts 2, verses 1 through 6. Hear God's holy, inerrant, and inspired word. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Thus ends for now the reading of God's word. Grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Let's pray and ask him to add his blessing to his word. Let's pray. Holy God, Heavenly Father, we come before you and we pray that you would let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. He got bitten by a radioactive spider and he was never the same. No, today's sermon is not about Spider-Man, but that first sentence, it encapsulates so much of what you need to know about Spider-Man, right? Sometimes one sentence can almost sum up everything. One simple sentence, one simple concept. Now again, it doesn't explain everything. In the case of Spider-Man, it doesn't explain why Spider-Man 3 with Tobey Maguire was so bad, but it explains a lot, right? Those of you who are wondering, that's like two Spider-Man actors ago, but let me try to give you in a similar vein one sentence that explains Pentecost. The Spirit was poured out upon the church and they were never the same. The Spirit was poured out upon the church and they were never the same. Let me expand that sentence a little bit. The Spirit is poured out. The church was empowered, informed, and inflamed in their message the good news of the resurrected Christ, it spread like an unstoppable wildfire, and it's still burning today. Does that explain everything about Pentecost? Everything about the early church? No, but it explains a lot. So let's, 
let's watch this fire spread and spread quickly with 10, yes, you heard that right, 10 snapshots from Pentecost. Our first snapshot, first thing we see is this, number one, a sound, a sound in verses one and two. Let's read verses one and two. We'll read the verses as we go through the sections. Verses one and two, when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. What kind of sound? It tells us like one like a mighty rushing wind. The Greek word for wind is panuma. Yes, you do pronounce the P in this case. It can also be translated breath or spirit. In the Hebrew and Latin words, they're similar with kind of that ambiguity of meaning there, a little double entendre, if you will. Is it talking about wind or spirit? Well, sometimes the Bible writers, they capitalize on this intentional vagueness or ambiguity, like John chapter 3, verse 8, where John quotes Jesus saying, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit, capital S, Spirit in the text there. As Billy Graham once said, I see the effects of the wind, but I've never seen the wind. The sound of the wind puts us on notice that something is happening in this passage. Something powerful is coming. And what is it? Well, Luke tells us it's secondly, the Spirit. The Spirit, you see that in verses three and four. In divided tongues, it says, as of fire, appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Yes, there's fire. There's tongues that look like fire. Yes, it's confusing, makes you ask questions about 1 Corinthians. But what do you know here? What do you know with certainty? You know that the Holy Spirit is here. The Holy Spirit has filled every one of God's people and that they began to speak in other tongues. Now, at the risk of oversimplification, some would say that you're not truly a Christian unless you speak in tongues as well. Now, whatever they mean by tongues, whether they mean other languages or ecstatic speech that's unintelligible without an interpreter. But in other words, what, what some would say is that this description is a prescription for every Christian, not a mostly one-time event at the start of the church with a few key repeats in the book of Acts when the church is advancing into new territory. Prescription versus description. See, it's wise to compare the description to the only time in Scripture when we're expressly commanded to be filled with the Spirit, right? Ephesians 5, 18 and 19 says to us, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns, in spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. The only time we're expressly commanded to be filled with the Spirit in the Scriptures. Number one, Paul is talking to the church in Ephesus. He's talking to those who are presumably already Christians. Think about that for a second. You can have the Spirit and not be filled with the Spirit. You can have the Spirit, but not be filled with the Spirit. Secondly, what does Paul say? He doesn't tell them doesn't tell them speak in tongues. He tells them to sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. He tells them to be under control, not to be drunk. 
He tells them to be under control, not out of control, you might say. As James Boyce puts it in Acts, whenever Christians were filled with the Holy Spirit, they began not to necessarily speak in tongues. That does happen at times in the book of Acts. But he says, whenever they're filled with the Holy Spirit, they immediately began to testify forcefully and effectively to Jesus Christ. Amen. It's what we'll see in a moment. But next we see this. Thirdly, a curse reversed. A curse reversed in verses 5 through 12. Let's read a bigger chunk together, starting in verse 5. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? How do we explain what's happening? Well, first, we should stay tuned for Peter's explanation. We'll get to that. But don't we also see an echo here from the early chapters of Genesis? After the Spirit hovers over creation in Genesis 1, a few chapters later, a group bands together to build a tower to make their name famous. And God stops them. He confuses their language. He scatters them. Because the point was not for mankind to make God's name famous, right? Excuse me, it wasn't for them to make their name famous, man's name famous. The point was to make God's name famous. Pardon me, I misspoke. And now what do you see? After the Spirit rushes upon the church like a mighty rushing wind, God unconfuses their languages, doesn't he? Verse 5, it says they're Jews dwelling in Jerusalem. Dwelling, but it probably means they're just in town for the great feast of Pentecost. The Jews of the great dispersion. The after effects of the exile from Isaiah's day, for example. They have made a visit home. And verse 6 says they're confused. They don't know what's going on because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Their own dialectoi or dialects. Are they speaking languages that they don't understand? Or is the Holy Spirit somehow miraculously translating their speech into countless different languages for countless different hearers? Just look again, verse 7. We'll read an extended chunk here. Verse 7, And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear, each of us, in his own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. That list just reinforces it for you, right? It's not it's not someone who speaks Spanish saying, yeah, I kind of understood what he said in Portuguese. No, 
loads of different languages, and they're all hearing it. They all somehow understand it. And yet at the same time, some have no idea what's going on. What is going on? Other people say in verse 13, well, they must be drunk. We'll get to that in a moment. But for now, just notice the progress of biblical history, biblical redemption. In Genesis, when man exalted himself, God confused their languages. When God exalted his risen son, he unconfused their languages temporarily so that they could hear about the risen Jesus. And one day, every tribe, tongue, and nation will gather in heaven together to exalt the lamb who was slain and the lion who reigns. Revelation chapter 5, verses 9 and 10 says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and nation and people. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then if you look at the end of the chapter, every creature in heaven is joining them to praise. But for now, the people in Jerusalem, they're a little confused. What's going on? Is everyone drunk? No, that's a mistake that someone once made before. And that leads us to our next point. Number four, we see a priest's error repeated. A priest's error repeated in verses 13 through 15. Let's read. But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words, for these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. They say it's five o'clock somewhere, but it was only 9 a.m. in Jerusalem, the third hour of the day. But this is not the first time that a godly man or woman has made a mistake like this. Think back to 1 Samuel chapter 1. Hannah wants a baby, wants a baby so badly. She's praying in the temple. Her heart is praying, the text says. Her, her lips are moving, but her mouth is making no sound. Perhaps some of you have done this. Even grown men and women don't always like to pray in front of others. That's not all bad, keep in mind. We don't want to practice our righteousness before men. And at the same time, elders are called to ministry of the word and prayer. So praying in public, modeling biblical prayer, that's not a bad thing. Regardless, Eli the priest, he sees her lips moving. He doesn't hear any sound. He doesn't understand what's going on. And so in 1 Samuel 1, 14, Eli says to Hannah, how long will you go on being drunk? Put your wine away from you. And Hannah says, no, I'm, I'm pouring my heart out to God. Imagine how wrong he's gotten things here. This devout woman pouring her heart out. He thinks she's drunk. She corrects him. He recovers somewhat nicely in verse 17. Then Eli answered, go in peace. And the God of Israel grant your petition, petition that you have made to him. And her petition is granted. And then she gives that gift right back to God. His name was Samuel, the last judge of Israel before King Saul. But what do we make of 1 Samuel? What do we make of Acts 2? Godly people doing what God is leading them to do, and some other godly person thinks they're drunk. 
Among other things, doesn't it show us that the people of God and the purposes of God will often be misunderstood, even by God's people, even by a priest, an ordained servant of God? Shouldn't that make us cautious, prayerful, dependent? Shouldn't we be cautious about interpreting the events of history unless God himself interprets it for us in his word? But thankfully, Peter, an apostle, envoy, the messenger of God, he interprets this event for us. His interpretation, again, is not that everyone is drunk. No, next we see, number five, a prophecy fulfilled. A prophecy fulfilled, verses 16 through 21. Let's read. This is what was uttered. Peter is speaking again. He's giving his sermon. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even all my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun, excuse me, shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Now, interestingly, Joel in chapter two, he doesn't actually say in the last days. It's a similar phrase. This is Peter's Holy Spirit inspired interpretation. But don't miss what he's saying. He's saying, brothers and sisters, we are in the last days. Now, don't panic. Don't start making predictions or preparations or, oh, wait, hold on. I've got to. Peter said the last days began 2,000 years ago. Now, on one level, that means we should be ready for Jesus to come back at any time and live in light of that. On another level, this undercuts a lot of end times prophecies, doesn't it? But you'll notice in, in Joel, some of what's happening in Pentecost fulfills Joel's prophecy, doesn't it? Some of these things are fulfilled here at Pentecost. The Spirit is poured out. Prophecy is happening by lots of people. People are about to call upon the name of the Lord, and they are about to be saved. Lots of parallels there, right? But not all of Joel 2 takes place in Acts 2. The sun hasn't been turned to darkness, has it? If that happened, well, Joel forgot to mention it. No, because when Joel saw a vision of the last days, it's like he saw it all at once from so far away that he couldn't tell that the twin peaks of his prophecy were actually very far apart. Joel apparently didn't know exactly how long the last days would be, and we don't either. But he knew they would feature the Spirit poured out. He knew they would feature cataclysmic events. We know, based on this and other places in the New Testament, the last days have begun. But we don't know how long they'll last. So at the very least, we should listen to what the Scripture tells us about those last days. And one thing that Acts and Joel tell us, it's the same thing that Romans tells us. You see, after a prophecy fulfilled... We also see, number six, a Romans preview. A Romans preview. Look at verse 21 one more time. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. This is not Bible trivia hour, but many of you probably notice that, that verse is familiar. And also prophecy is often a preview of what is to come, right? 
This verse comes to us again in the Bible. A few years after the events of Acts 2, Paul becomes a Christian. Paul becomes a missionary, an apostle to the Gentiles, and he writes the book of Romans, his magnum opus, some would say. And Romans 10, 13 is the same thing we just read. You might remember it because we read it a few weeks ago in our final sermon on the book of Isaiah. And I'm highlighting this for a few reasons. Number one, God forbid that we preach 41 verses in Acts without reminding us of the importance of faith in Jesus. Number two, interesting. Despite all the attention early on, on the Holy Spirit being poured out, tongues of fire, a mighty rushing wind, the main emphasis in Peter's sermon is Jesus, not the Holy Spirit. It's Jesus. The main emphasis of his sermon is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that's what we see next as well. After a Romans preview, we also see, number seven, a gospel review. A gospel review. Let's read verses 21 to 24. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, Peter says, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Who's the Lord that's mentioned in verse 21? It's, of course, Jesus of Nazareth. The next verse says he was fully man, but attested by God as a man of mighty works. He's hinting at the fact that he's not a mere man. They knew this. They were in Jerusalem. Some of these men and women have been there when Christ was crucified. Others had heard something about them, about him, excuse me. And now Peter goes for the jugular. What do, you, what do you need to know about this Jesus? Verse 23, this Jesus delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Who killed Jesus? Jewish leaders? Roman soldiers? The entire Jewish mob who said crucify him? How about God himself, God the Father? Wasn't it God the Father's plan to which the Son fully agreed, in which the Spirit participated in part by empowering him to complete his mission, Jesus, in part by raising Jesus from the dead? Did God the Father deliver Jesus up to death? Not that the godness of Jesus could ever die, but the human nature of Jesus, didn't it suffer death? Didn't his human heart stop beating for three days? And why? Paul tells us this in Romans, Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? But also don't miss what he's saying in verse 23. Peter makes Two statements in the same sentence. One, he says it was God's definite plan to deliver Jesus up to death. Two, Peter's audience, they are responsible for the death of Jesus. One more time, verse 23. This Jesus 
delivered up to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Theologians note that Peter is affirming God's sovereignty and human responsibility. And he's doing it side by side in the same sentence. Now, Peter's sermon was probably longer than this. We probably have a faithful and accurate summary of that sermon right here. But Luke, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he does not feel the need to explain these points at length, does he? He presents both of them, bold assertions alongside each other, and he expects us to affirm them and keep listening to the rest of the sermon as we continue to resolve that tension over time. Because here's what happens if you, what might happen if you just get caught up with the tension between God's sovereignty and human responsibility all by itself. You might miss the most important answer to my earlier question, who killed Jesus? All those answers we gave earlier are true. Who killed Jesus? Didn't I? Didn't you? Second verse of how deep the father's love for us says this, behold, the man upon the cross, my sin upon his shoulders, ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. Sovereignty of God. It's not just a big concept. It's also good news because we have a big God who can solve big problems. But do not forget your responsibility for your choices and your sins. Do not forget your need of a big God who can save you from the giant problem that is your sin and your guilt. And do not forget that Jesus rose from the dead to fix your problem and to give you new life. It's the next thing you see after a gospel review. We also see number eight, a resurrection in the Old Testament. A resurrection in the Old Testament. Let's read several verses starting in verse 25. We'll go to 35. Here we go. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Peter is quoting his second and third scripture passages. He has three texts for one sermon. In verse 24, he mentions the resurrection. And he says it wasn't, um, it wasn't possible for death to hold Jesus. Verse 25, he says, Psalm 16, it's actually a prophecy about Jesus, a messianic psalm. 
And he'll spend the next four verses quoting it, expounding upon verses 27 through 28 or verses 10 through 11 of Psalm 16. And he says, guys, David, David is dead. He is still dead. Verse 29. So when he said, you will not let your Holy One see corruption in the Psalms, what did he mean? Answer, Peter explains, verse 31, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. In the following verses, Peter says that Jesus, who's now at the time he's speaking, ascended to heaven and at the right hand of the Father, that he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. Yes, the baptism of the Holy Spirit, it was poured out at Pentecost. But Peter's main point is that Jesus is doing it. Jesus has done the amazing things that they're seeing and hearing. And how does Peter know that? Because of Psalm 110, he quotes that in verses 34 and 35, Psalm 110, the most quoted psalm in the New Testament, in part because of this first line, the Lord said to my Lord, what is going on there? Well, it must be that God the Father is speaking to God the Son, David's Lord, our Lord, promising that the nations will be subject to the Son. One thing's for sure, David wasn't talking about himself ascending to heaven, sitting with God the Father. How much did David know of that years before? Hard to say. Maybe very little. But with the burning insight, the illumination of the Holy Spirit, Peter saw it, his audience saw it, and we see it. God's plan all along, of which we only see hints in the Old Testament, was to deliver Jesus up for our sins and to raise him from the dead. Because of that, we have freedom from sin. We have new life in Jesus if we trust in Christ. If we trust in Christ, because yes, there is a response that's expected from Peter's sermon, from every sermon. After a resurrection in the Old Testament, we also see, number nine, a searing conclusion. A searing conclusion in verses 36 and 37, which we'll read now. Let all the house of Israel, Peter says, therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Now, I'm not whining, but you know, one reason my job is hard <laughs> because in order to do my job, I have to do kind of what Peter just did. Look you in the eye and say, you crucified Jesus, at least sort of. See, I hear the objections. Well, I didn't crucify Jesus. The Jews did. Pilate did. Does the Bible actually say that I crucified Jesus? It does say this in Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So yes, maybe it'd be more accurate to say something like this. Your sin, my sin, made the crucifixion necessary. Of course, those words pretty much pack the same punch as what Peter says to his Jewish audience in verse 36. God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Saying stuff like that, bracing for the response. It's one reason my job's hard, but you know why my job's great? Because every now and then, 
people say, what shall we do? And I get to say this, repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. I know the title of this point is a searing conclusion, but it's actually not the conclusion of this passage because you see, tenthly, finally, a spirit-filled encore. A spirit-filled encore, starting at verse 38. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. The audience is cut to the heart. They ask what to do. Peter says, Repent, be baptized, and more. He says, The promise is for your children. Same way it was in Genesis, both Ishmael and Isaac received the sign of the promise. They both heard the same teaching. The promises for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Again, there is a response demanded, a responsibility for the hearers. But that response, it ultimately depends upon whom God will call. It says in verse 40, Peter kept exhorting them. One of the things he said was save yourselves from this crooked generation. Thousands respond. How many were there? Don't know for sure. But 3,000 of them respond. The book of Acts, you'll notice, is filled with notes like this. Doesn't mean there were no problems in the early church. I'm sure they argued about the color of the carpet and other things like that. I like this carpet for the record. It does mean... The gospel spread in spite of the problems. Amen. It was like a fire. A fire that illumined them, that warmed their hearts, that empowered their witnessing, their testifying, their truth-telling about what they had seen and heard. And oh, they saw, they heard amazing things, mighty rushing wind, tongues of fire. The Holy Spirit poured out upon them the reverse of the curse of Babel. At the end of the day, The message kept coming back to the crucified and risen Jesus. The call to believe in him, to repent, to turn from sin, to turn to Christ. The spirit was poured out and the church was never the same. The spirit was poured out and the church, it was empowered, it was informed, it was inflamed. Informed the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ empowered by the Spirit to testify to that truth and inflamed so that their message kept spreading, not just to 12, not just to 3,000, not just to Jerusalem, but to Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. That flame is still burning. That message is still spreading. We still live in a crooked generation, as verse 40 says, and we still need to be saved from this generation and from ourselves, but confusing as this world is, as confusing as some aspects of the passage are, the central message remains the same. Everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. 
everyone who turns from sin and turns to their savior. Such a simple message. And that's why it spreads like wildfire. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that our hearts might be strangely warmed, as someone once said, that we might come to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we might know what it is to be freed from sin and guilt and shame. We might know what it is to live and breathe for an audience of one. Oh, Father, be with us. If we've already known that joy, then restore to us the joy of our salvation and renew a right spirit within us. And Father, if we've never known it, open our eyes. May our hearts be strangely warmed. May we know what it is for our chains to fall off, our hearts to be free, to rise, go forth, and follow thee. God be with us. We pray all this in Jesus' great name. Amen.